Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. As you're turning there, as Rick mentioned, this is uh, uh, kind of special for me in a lot of ways because my grandfather uh, spent many years preaching, expositing the word of God from here. And many of you uh, were under his ministry. And uh, if I can plug for you guys, uh, December 2nd, he will be here and he will preach from this pulpit and uh, celebrating the 60th year at Mission Road. It's also special because I was sitting right over there when I decided I wanted to be in ministry. Um, it was a, uh, just, just different because I'm a, I guess you would call a third generational pastor. Uh, and so just a, a part of that family and a long heritage there. And so it's just a humbling opportunity to be able to preach God's word, especially at this right here. So uh, I'm thankful for it. John 14 is going to be our text this morning or this evening. And John 14, our text is going to be verses 1 through 6. John 14, 1 through 6. Follow along as I read. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for your grace. Thank you for, thankful for your mercy. Thank you for a great Savior in which we sung about just a few minutes ago. You became sin who knew no sin on our behalf. You became, you humbled yourself and became a man in order to live a life in the midst of man and, Father, ultimately to die on the cross for our sins, but not staying dead, rising again on the third day and conquering sin. And, Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to be able to open up your word. Father, it is not any fancy words that I have to say this evening. It is your word, your revelation to us that we, we enjoy, that we love, that we, that we use to change our lives. That we, it is sufficient in so many ways and always. Father, I pray that, that you give me clarity, that you give me uh, the words that, that you would have me say, not from my mouth, from my mouth, but Father, from your word. In Christ's name, amen. This last week, we celebrated the 501st year of the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to a wall in Germany, and out of, out of that came five declarations, five affirmations, uh, five foundational rally cries um, from the Reformers. These are as follows, sola scriptura, which means Scripture alone, the word sola means uh, only or alone, so scripture alone, scripture only. 
Sola gratias, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola de gloria, in God alone be the glory. And sola Christos, in Christ alone. These five solas were developed specifically to, to counter the Roman Catholic Church, to, to separate themselves from the church, uh, specifically the Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church taught that the foundation for faith and practice was a combination of, of scriptures, sacred traditions, and teaching the magisterium and from the Pope. Well, the reformers didn't agree, and they, they said, no, our foundation is in sola scriptura, in scripture alone. Second, the Catholic Church taught that we were saved by a combination of God's grace, the merits that we accumulate through the penance of good works, and the merits of the saints that have gone before us. Reformers again responded, sola gratia, in grace, or grace alone. The Catholic Church taught that we are justified by faith and the works that we produce, which the righteousness that God infuses in us through faith brings about. Again, the Reformers respond, no, we are justified by the faith alone, sola fide, which lays hold of the alien righteousness of Christ that God freely credits to the account of all those who believe. The Catholic Church adhered to what Martin Luther called the theology of glory in opposition to the theology of the cross, in which the glory for the sinner's salvation would be attributed partly to Christ, partly to Mary, partly to the saints, and partly to the sinner himself. The reformers responded again, no, the only true gospel is that which gives all glory to God alone as is taught in the scriptures. And finally, the Catholic Church taught that we are saved by the merits of Christ and the saints and that we approach God through Christ, the saints, and Mary who all prayed and intercede for us. The reformers respond, no, we are saved by the merits of Christ alone, and we come to God through Christ alone. Today, the Catholic Church teaches the same essential perversions of the truth. And some of our Protestant friends, if we call them friends, have very much corrupted these, these truths where scripture isn't the, the, the standard in which Christians live by. It's scripture plus something else. It's Christ plus works. It's faith plus works. This evening, we are gonna focus on sola Christos, in Christ alone. And Jesus presents to us three arguments of why our salvation is in Christ alone. Three arguments of why our salvation is in Christ alone. The first is found in verses, verse 1. Christ is the object of our faith. Christ is the object of our faith. Now, we are in the most important week of all history. 
probably maybe even for us who are believers and uh, know what this week is about, maybe in the darkest week of all history. On Sunday, Christ just rode in on a donkey with people praising and giving glory to his name. He spent Monday uh, emptying the money changers in the temple, teaching the disciples, and now we come to Thursday. We are hours away from Christ being arrested, being tried, and being persecuted and put to death on a Roman criminal cross. And just prior to this, Christ is, has just washed the disciples' feet in a, in a hum, humbling uh, declaration. He is he's sharing a meal with them. We call this the upper room discourse, probably known as. Judas has been outed as the one who is going to betray, even though the disciples are still wondering who that really is, but they are, he is on his way at this moment, about to betray Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And Peter just got told that he is going to deny his Savior. So we get to verse one. And Jesus, being the, never, never has nothing to say. I know some of us, and especially me, you know, you have a conversation and sometimes you just have nothing to say. Jesus always had the perfect thing to say at the perfect time in the perfect situation. And he said, verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. Here, Jesus is continuing this discourse. We are, we are flying, we are dropping in in the middle of a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. He's already had a conversation prior, we are, and he has a conversation after. We are in the middle of a very small part of this conversation between him and his disciples. The previous chapter left us hanging a little bit with Peter's denial or Christ saying that Peter is going to deny him by the end of the night. There could be some turmoil going on between the disciples' mind because Christ just told them that one of them is going to betray him. And not knowing it was Judas at the moment, probably all thinking, is it me? Is it me? Who, what's going on? Jesus is talking differently than he's he's ever talked before. He's, he's teaching us differently than he, he's ever taught us before. They were probably unsure about what was going on and confused about what Jesus was saying. And Jesus is about to unpack the fact that he is leaving them. Jesus is now talking to the 11 disciples, and I think this is very important because Judas is now out of the picture. He is, again, on his way to betray Christ. So he's talking to a very specific group of people. These 11 disciples will be the foundation of the church. These 11 disciples are the, the pillars of the church. And in some ways, we could say he's talking to people who are believers. We can conclude that way. And Jesus was comforting his disciples. He knew they had questions. He knew that things were wrestling in their minds. 
And what's interesting is Jesus is comforting his disciples when in just a few hours he is going to be suffering and dying and bearing the wrath of God for our sins. Yet he finds it as the perfect time to comfort his own disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. This is a command. Let not your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And we have to ask the question, why? Why not let your hearts be troubled? Well, uh, as Rick always points us, look at the text. It says, believe in God, believe also in me. This is an interesting phrase that John has constructed here. Uh, many of our texts Take this as the, a command, a you believe in God, you also believe in me. Uh, some of the texts kind of take it as the indicative. Uh, but really, I think, I, don't, I don't think that we should get bogged down into those uh, different areas in, in one sense. Because it could be a command, believe in God, believe also in me. And that's, you know, let not your hearts be troubled. You, you want to believe, he's telling you, believe in me, trust me. I haven't let you down, trust me. Or it could be a statement, and I think he's making a statement that is to comfort, because in Christ there's comfort, and that comfort is in the belief that he is the son of God. I think this statement is not just a statement of comfort or of, of belief necessarily, but it's a Christological conclusion that Jesus is God. He is he is equaling himself. He is comparing, not comparing, he is, he is saying, I am, I am God. He is claiming his deity. Believing in God is believing in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is believing in God. And I think ignoring the fact, or ignoring the lordship of Jesus Christ causes colossal damage to the gospel. I think misunderstanding the fact that Jesus is Lord misrepresents that what the gospel is all about. Listen to what other passages of scripture say about Christ's deity. And I'd encourage you to write these down. I'm going to fly through these a little bit. Um, starting in Isaiah 9:6. Isaiah 9, 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Matthew 1, 23, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Colossians 2.9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1.3, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Colossians 1, 15 through 19. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And finally, Paul, again, mixes or interacts with both his humanity and his deity in Philippians. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, starting Actually, I'm going to go back, sorry, and starting in verse 5. He says this, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in him human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is very God of very God, and he's very man of very man. And he's making this declaration here. Believe in me, believe also in me, and believe also in God. Jesus is the object of our faith. Therefore, he can provide comfort to his disciples and comfort to us when our hearts are troubled. Salvation in Christ alone is because Christ is the object of our faith. Christ is also the destination of our faith. In verses two through five, Christ is the destination of our faith. Christ continues and says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. The Father's house here, he is talking about heaven. And for those who grew up in the church and maybe grew up on the old King James King James is an excellent translation. It's, it's, it's a good translation, but they got it wrong. Uh, the word here is not mansions. It's, it's rooms. Uh, in my father's house, there are many rooms. One commentary says, notice that there is only one house with many rooms. It is not the father's house. Heaven is not blocks of streets lined with many mansions. Our residence will not be found going six blocks to the right down the block, we all as believers will live in the Father's house because we are all one with him and members of the same family. The idea of mansions is far-fetched. It's, this word really comes from the word remain or to abide. And we can kind of conclude that where, where Christ is or where God is, is the Father's house. Now, in the Old Testament, the, that would have been probably referring to the tabernacle or the temple where the Father was, where the Father abided, where the Father, you would go and uh, 
go and make sacrifices at the temple. The disciples probably were thinking temple, thinking, okay, Christ is talking about this temple, that Christ is going to his father's house. And he says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Christ tells them that he is going to prepare a place for them. And this, this, if you use your uh, sanctified imagination, this had to be really confusing to the disciples. Okay, we are in this upper room, and Christ is talking about he's leaving, and yet he is going to prepare something, and we, you know, we just came from there. Why are we going back there? It seems, it seems odd. This preparation um, was not necessarily a, he wasn't talking about the temple, he was talking about heaven. And this preparation wasn't necessarily Christ leaving to go build houses, build mansions, build rivers, or create trees, roads. This preparation is, I think, threefold. I think the preparation is, first, the fact that right now Christ hasn't, hasn't died. Christ still has not died for, for sinners. He has not fulfilled his, the prophecies. This would, this would be to take away the sins of um, the, those who believe. And second, Christ also, another part of the preparation is Christ hasn't risen from the dead. Another preparation. And finally, I think the preparation is not physical, but spiritual. There are many, even here tonight, who have not come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. He's waiting for you to believe in him so he could take you to himself and, and dwell with him and abide with him in heaven. The destination of heaven has never been the beauty and the wonders or whether we will be living in mansions just over the hilltop or even reuniting with loved ones. Even though, don't get me wrong, those things are, are great. Heaven is gonna be a glorious place. It's gonna be magnificent. The scenery is unreal. But heaven is not a place in which we long for those things. We don't long for his return because of some material reason or some, some, some creation, creation, created thing that he's creating, even though, again, those things are great. We long, our destination is, and our longing is to be with Christ, worshiping him and his lordship. Take your Bibles real quick and turn to Revelation. Let me illustrate this real fast. John, or Revelation 4, starting in verse 6b. Revelation 4, 6b. And, and John, as we know, the writer of Revelation is uh, hoisted into a vision of, of heaven, this magnificent vision, and, and he describes as best as he can what, what he's seeing. Verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6b. He says, and around the throne, on the side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature the face with the face of a man. 
and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes, are all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor to, and thanks to him, who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him with lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." Heaven is heaven because Christ is there. The destination of heaven isn't because of these magnificent, glorious scenes in which, again, those are wonderful things. Heaven isn't in a place where we are longing for a reunion with loved ones or saints, which is a great and glorious thing. But heaven is heaven because Christ abides in heaven. So the question comes for us, do you long to be with Christ? Are you waiting, are you longing for the day when Christ returns? He, remember he says he's going to prepare a place for us and what he's doing, he's coming back. He's coming back. All, there are things in our lives, distractions, people, goals, that keep us from being heavenly minded. Is your view of heaven a place of reunion, of scenery, or are you saying, I, I don't wanna go to heaven yet because I haven't accomplished being married, haven't accomplished having kids, haven't graduated seminary yet? Or is your, or do you desire and cannot wait for the scene of Revelation 4, where we would be worshiping Christ? Listen, that scene, that was all directed to one th person, one person. All those things were pointing to Christ. They were, they bound and worshiped Christ. Our salvation is in Christ alone because Christ is the object of our faith. He is the destination of our faith. And third, he is the route to the Father is, I'm sorry, the route to the Father is through Christ. The route to the Father is through Christ. Verses five and six. He continues and said, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Now, listen, Christ, Christ wasn't assuming something that he didn't know. Christ knew that the disciples did not know what he was talking about. He knew the disciples were probably all mixed up. He knew that the disciples were, were trying to figure out and trying to apply it to what the situation at hand. He's thinking, okay, so again, are we going back to this temple? Are we, uh, what are we doing? It's late at night. I mean, uh, I'm sure they had questions 
And he, asks a qu- he makes a statement, and you know where I'm going, waiting for a response. And at this time, again, the last disciple to speak was Peter. So you know there's probably some re- reservation to say anything at all. But Thomas speaks up. And he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? The last time, again, the disciples said something. Peter said, I will go wherever you go. I will will do whatever you want me to do. I will not leave you. And Christ said, "You you will deny me before the end of the night. Just a few verses down, we see that Philip asked the question, and it seems obvious when he asked the question, and it, again, you go, are you not paying attention to what Christ is saying in our, in our 2020 vision, right? I'm sure if we were in the same situation, we would do the same things. Um, but Thomas asked a question, and often, I think Thomas gets a bad rap. I think Thomas is known for being what? Doubting Thomas, right? We all know he is the doubter. He is the one who needs proof of the resurrection of Christ. And yet we forget that he asked this question. And I, I wonder in my, again, sanctified imagination, if, if when Thomas did touch the side of Christ and when he did see the nail pierce hands, if he thought of this conversation and said, now I understand, and now that's why I conclude my Lord and my God we won't know until heaven, but, but Thomas asks a very, very important question. In fact, it is, it is a brilliant question to ask. He says, how can we know the way? So important here. He didn't say, Lord, I will go wherever you go. Lord, we don't want you to leave. Lord, stay here. He said, how can I know the way? I want to know the way to where you are going. He wanted to be with his Savior even though he didn't quite fully understand, stand. But, and again, there's confusion going on. Thomas, the disciples are, are mixed up. And Jesus said to him, in verse six, very famous verse, most of us have it memorized. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the sixth I am statement. The Gospel of John is not is very often repeating the I am statements. He is described it describes Jesus and each one intensifies his deity more and more. He says, I am the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I'm the resurrection and the life. In a couple chapters, we'll see he is the I am the true vine. But here he says, I am the way. There is no other way to the Father but through Jesus Christ. Matthew 7, 13 says, The way is wide that leads to destruction, but the way is narrow that leads to righteousness. And we had to ask the question, how narrow is this way? Well, it goes through one person, Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There is no, no other, other work. There is no other, other thing you can do except through Jesus Christ is the way to the Father. He says, I am the truth. John 1, 14 and verse 17, 
He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, for the law has, was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The, the law was not a display of God's grace, but a demand for holiness. So the law was to demonstrate the need for a savior, the need of a, of a true sacrifi- sacrificial lamb, a true spotless lamb. That was Jesus. He was a spotless lamb. He was, he was true. The reality of full truth toward which he, the law pointed, came through the person of Jesus Christ. He was to fulfill that truth. He says, I am the life Jesus is the fulfillment of the law because he obeyed the law perfectly. And Jesus is the perfect display of the life in which the Father requires of each and every person to live. And he was the life in the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jesus continues and says, no one comes to the Father except through me. This I am statement displays his deity, but it emphasizes that there is no other way to salvation. Remember, we, we went through all those solas, and, and one of them was in Christ alone. And the, the Roman Catholic Church would say that that is not only through Christ, but it's through Mary and through, through the church and through your works. And Christ would say, no, there's no other way. There's no other truth, no, no priest, no pope, no church. There's no other life. The Pope, Paul, Peter, mom and dad, there's no such thing as spiritual grandchildren. Being familiar with John MacArthur's ministry doesn't get you to heaven. Knowing, all, knowing and reading all Charles Spurgeon doesn't get you to heaven. Being a member of Mission Road Bible Church and being here on a Sunday night does not get you to heaven. Going to the Expositor Seminary does not get you to heaven. There's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying that every way, every other way leads to hell except through Jesus Christ. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the firstborn of all creation. This is the way to the Father. This is the gospel that needs to be preached. This is the gospel that cannot be lost. And this is the gospel that is truly, truly good news. For those who are saved, we know we did nothing to gain our salvation. We are as my, uh, my uncle from Alabama, Rick Gerson, often says, we are dirty, rotten, stinking sinners. There are three, three arguments of why our salvation is in Christ alone. Christ is the object. Christ is the destination. And Christ is the route in which we are to get to the Father. And just a few verses down Christ doesn't leave us alone he doesn't leave us he, he provides a helper for us he provides the Holy Spirit to aid us to guide us to help us 
understand these things, help us to, to, to believe these things when often our, our faith is, is lacking. So the question is, how should this stir us up? How should, this, how should we apply these things? Well, to, to the believer, it causes great thanksgiving. It causes us to be able to sing songs like we sang tonight. To be thankful for our salvation, that it is not by our own doing, but through Christ and Christ alone. And what it should cause us to do is to go out and share the good news that there is no other way, that every other way leads to hell except through Christ. Getting a promotion, getting, being a, a good father doesn't get you to Christ. It's through Jesus Christ. And we, we had that good news to share. We should be wanting to share. We should, we should have that fire to share that good news. And to those who are not saved or maybe in question, there is no other way. Attending church on Sunday night, attending church on a regular basis doesn't get you to heaven. Listening, listening to good sermons doesn't get you to heaven. It's, it's, it helps because you hear the gospel doesn't get you to heaven. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that he is holy, that he is magnificent, and that we are sinful beings, that we are separated from God. And trusting that he died on the cross for our sins. And Rick often reminds us that he didn't stay dead. He rose again, repenting of our sins and confessing them to Christ, living for Christ and longing for his return. Tonight, if you don't know Christ, that's the good news. That is what you can do tonight. It doesn't need to be a, anything magnificent. It could be in your chair. I plead for you to repent of those sins. I would say, for those who are saved, when we, when we do lack the faith, to repent of those sins, that Christ, and we, when we don't treat Christ as the Lord of all lords and the King of all kings, that we repent and confess those sins. It's ironic, and I didn't plan this, but um, I'm, the song that we sang right before I came up to preach was In Christ Alone. And all, all those verses are great, and all those verses point us to the fact that our salvation is in Christ alone. But verse two really applies to this evening. It says, in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on the cross that Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live.